What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 167 of Misfits and Rejects. Today's episode, I spoke with Sam McManus. Sam is the leader of the Yellowwood Adventure Tours. He is somebody who's leading people into some of the coolest parts of the world, such as Ethiopia, such as Oman, Lebanon, Iran. Somebody who I really admire for what he's doing and how he's showing the world that these places are beautiful and the people there are kind and that you can have the most amazing adventures and experiences in these parts of the world without having to be afraid of them. That's why I brought him on the show to really just have him tell his story, how he got into it, why he's doing it, and the different types of places that he's taking his tours at from an American perspective, maybe even most of Europe, people aren't really looking to as touristic destinations. So yeah, it was a really cool talk. Loved the conversation. Really inspired me to make more of an effort to get to those locations, possibly even join one of his tours. I know his tours are highly rated. A lot of people enjoy the experience that he provides. And you can check those out at yellowwoodadventures.com. So I highly recommend that you look on a map throughout the conversation because, again, some of these places that he's taking people, I wasn't super familiar with geographically where they exactly were. And as he talks about the history of it, you can start to piece together you know, how maybe different empires collided or how certain locations in the Middle East became hotbeds of religious idealisms. He's a wealth of knowledge, and he did a really good job of kind of giving a quick little overview of some of the interesting aspects of the locations he's going and how he's presenting these different locations to the individuals who come on his tours. So one thing to note throughout this episode that some of the dates that he talks about does do not match up. We did the conversation October last year, and I backlog a lot of these interviews just so I always have content to give you guys. And so some of the stuff he talks about already happened, or you go to his website and just see up-to-date information on what's going on with the dates and the different locations in which he's hosting different retreats and tours. Also, I left some of the choppiness in the end of the conversation within the interview. Our connection got a little choppy. Um, I was sitting here in California. He was back in the UK for a quick minute before he went on a scouting mission to a new location in the Middle East. And some of our conversation just got a little choppy. I just left it in. Um, sometimes I do my best to edit that stuff out, but it seemed appropriate and fine just to leave this in. So just note, like towards the end, it gets a little bit choppy, but very audible, understandable, and nothing really to worry about. So I just want to thank you, the audience, for joining me week in and week out. I really appreciate the love. I really appreciate the support. If you like Misfits and Rejects, I would appreciate a five-star review, maybe even a comment of some kind. That really helps me in the ratings. If you're a new listener, a first-time listener, please pull out that phone, hit the subscribe button. It really just helps me you know, get more exposure, get this message out. It helps within the search engine of Google within iTunes. However you're listening to this, it all kind of comes together and just helps me get found, basically. So with that said, please sit back, relax, enjoy this episode with Sam McManus from Yellowwood Adventures. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Sam McManus from Yellowwood Adventures, somebody that I was put in contact with that uh, is doing some really cool stuff with his adventure group. So Sam, welcome to the show. 
Hi, Chaplin. Thanks a lot for having me on your podcast. No worries, dude. It's a pleasure, man. Uh, where'd you just come from? You just came from a big adventure, leading a tour where? Uh, leading a tour. I've just literally flown back to the UK uh, two days ago. I was leading a tour of 12 tourists in Ethiopia, uh, which is our, the company that um, we first started running tours to about three years ago. We're now in six countries. Before that, I was leading a group of eight clients in Mongolia. We were horse riding. And after a week of uh, business meetings in London, I'm about to fly back out to Lebanon, where we've got another group of tourists. So really nice and busy. You know, I started a tour company because I love traveling. I don't ever want to give that up. Um, But we're growing now to quite a cool size where, as we speak, we've actually got another two group of uh tourists in in ethiopia as well but i've just used freelance guides for them so it's a really busy time and it's it's pretty exciting at the moment sounds like it so it sounds like ethiopia was your pilot kind of like the pilot country you started running these tours in yeah and it's um it's an interesting story of people often say like why did you start in ethiopia and and the reality of why is actually more unbelievable than than if i had just made something up so it's the classic story, you know, I'd had a um, reasonably successful corporate career. I worked in the events business, so international um, conferences all over the world. I was a producer and worked on the logistics. But then I kind of hated it, and when I got to about 30, I quit. And I was just like, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to do that. And the week I quit, I decided I wanted to start a travel company. Um, because travel had actually been, when I look back, it's always been that I, I would take jobs because of the travel opportunity it gave me. You know, I lived in Japan for a year. I lived in the Middle East for two years. I lived in Mexico for a year. And I'd just take a job because it, it got me to travel, and I realized that was my true passion. So I was like, right, I'm going to start a travel company, but where do I start? And it was weirdly, of all the places, I've been to about sort of 50, 60 countries at that point, which is quite a lot. And even then, I was like, well, there's no one place I want to go somewhere new. And I'd read, um, honestly, it was this, the link was this tenuous. I'd read um, a travel book by Paul Theroux, who's the father of the famous documentary maker, Louis Theroux. Uh, And it's called Dark Star Safari. And when he was about 60 years old, he traveled from Cairo to Cape Town by himself down the east coast of Africa, just hitchhiking, just this white bloke in his 60s. Um, and I, it was just the, this book really captured me and the, the part of it on Ethiopia, just, I don't know, you read with me with books, like you read something and there's some things that have a very strong impression on you. And I was like, that's it. That's the place I'm going to start. So I got a backpack, I'd quit my job and I went to Ethiopia for three months by myself, walking around mountains, meeting guides and built a website after that. And then that's how it started. So it was that tenuous. It was like one paragraph of a book that started the the whole journey that I'm on now. That's so right. Yeah, pre-show we kind of talked about that, how certain paragraphs in books capture your attention and kind of send you in a new direction with this this tour company. Staying on the Ethiopia topic, though, because i am always been fascinated in going there. The food has something that is really kind of drawing me there. What's the culture like and the people like there? Yeah, the food's... Uh, I'm, I'm, a massive uh, winner. We held, a, we did like a bit of a, not a pit, well, yeah, it was a PR stunt, I guess. We held a party. We we hired out a venue in Brixton Market in London, which if, for your listeners, if you don't know, Brixton Market's like the real sort of 
cultural or one of the many cultural hubs of London, you get like Rastafarians, you get people of all different cultures with these pop-up food stalls and, and cool shops. So we hired a venue with a bar and an upstairs band because I've been taking people to Ethiopia. We wanted to bring a little bit of Ethiopia to London. So we got this amazing restaurant called Hurrah Restaurant in Vauxhall to, to come do the catering and we got music and people just came and, and saw a bit of Ethiopia and the food was actually one of the biggest hits of the night because if you haven't tried Ethiopian food, it's very, very unique. It's Every meal is served on a um, like a flat, squidgy, savory pancake. It's called injera and it's made from a superfood grain called teff. Now, teff is just gluten-free, vegans love it, um, and just super good for you. It has super good weight loss properties, and it's very, very healthy, and is good for your heart, and all, all these other things. And on it, they'll have like bayonet, which is a mixture of uh, vegetable watts and curds, or you can have dibs, which is um, a, the meat version of that, still served on injera, and they don't use... Um, Cutlery. So in Jerry, you you'll peel, you just eat with your hands, well, just your right hand. Uh, you peel off a piece of the injera pancake and you scoop up the vegetable wots or the meat and eat it in in the pancake. So the food's always a massive uh, hit in the country. And then the people are extremely friendly and and they have legendary hospitality. But you know you can't just say an Ethiopian's an Ethiopian because actually Ethiopia is a huge country. It's about the size of France and Spain combined. Um, but with a collection of, of different cultures and tribes within that. So even within the, the country itself, they speak a total of 82 languages. Uh, the main language is Amharic, which is um, a relative and dis descendant from Hebrew. There are very strong ties to Israel and, and Damascus. And if you want me to go into the history, there's a whole really interesting uh, link to, to King Solomon with the Queen of Sheba. Um, and so, you know, once you start, you open that Pandora's box of what is Ethiopia, the rabbit hole goes much further than you think. They're not like other African countries. It's very, very unique. Can you just kind of tell us that story brief, like quickly? The yeah, sure. So uh, every, if you do go to Ethiopia, it's a running joke now because every Ethiopians are so proud of their heritage. They're, they'll always tell you on the back of a bus or in a restaurant or in a bar at four o'clock in the morning. You can't get away from the story. But um, it's uh, so Ethiopia was the second country in the world to uh, proclaim themselves Christian after Armenia. They've actually been Christians longer than in the West. And that's because of geographically, you know, if you look at them on a map, it's very close to Saudi Arabia and then it's very close to the Levant and, and the Holy Land of uh, Israel. So the Queen of Sheba at the time, um, the kingdom of Ethiopia spread from, it was mainly in the north um, and the capital city was in Aksum where we go on some of our trips. You can see some beautiful ancient relics there. And it spread over the Red Sea into what is modern day Yemen or used to be called Aden. So the Queen of Sheba um, ruled this empire and was, she was like the Cleopatra of her time. Very, very beautiful. And she traveled up to meet King Solomon in Jerusalem. And there's a sort of long and drawn out story to design, uh, design to make her look really modest. But they ended up sleeping together and she had a son by King Solomon called Menelik. So she comes back down to, uh, and Menelik had given her a ring to give to um, her son Menelik. So they come back down to Ethiopia. Menelik grows up 
to be a uh, man and he says oh I, to his mother he says i want to go up and see my father king solomon so she gives him the ring and he goes up back to jerusalem meets king solomon and he sees the ring and accepts him as his son and everything's great what what no one saw coming was then menelik then steals the ark of the covenant um and this is what every ethiopian believes and will tell you vehemently and as i said at bars at four o'clock in the morning which has got the ten commandments written on them steals them uh from king solomon and runs back to ethiopia and there's a church uh in axum to this day called st mary's it's a huge church with uh a dome ceiling and huge cross and Ethiopians to this day still believe that the Ark of the original Ark of the Covenant is in there that, that Menelik stole and, and brought back to Ethiopia. So the Christian heritage, there's these 13th century rock hewn churches all over the country as well. Even at you hike up and you can see them in the mountains with beautiful, brightly painted frescoes uh, inside uh, like I said, it's just people think of Ethiopia. They're like, oh, they, have they got enough to eat? And, you know, when you go there, there's this, this, this crazy history. And that's not even talking about the Rastafari. So um, that's that's one story in modern day history. The last emperor of Ethiopia was called Haile Selassie. And before uh, Haile Selassie was his coronation name. Before that, he was called Tafiri. That was his name. And he was the duke and ruler of the eastern city of Harar. Now, uh, duke in uh, Amharic is Ras. So his name was Ras Tafiri, which is where the name Rastafari comes from. So when he became Haile Selassie, he started using all of this jargon like, I'm the king of kings, I'm the light of Judah, I am the direct descendant of King Solomon. And uh, over in the Caribbean, the Jamaicans go, oh, he is absolutely the second coming of the messiah and started worshiping him and so that is where the religion of rastafarianism comes from from Haile selassie again the last ethiopian emperor so there's a huge that and that's just two of the most common stories once you start reading up on the history of the country it's just it's absolutely fascinating so the people who come on your tours are you just the whole day every day just giving them the his history behind where they're at and what they're doing or do you have guides who are telling the same history no i'm way too lazy for that i <laughs> i and also not knowledgeable enough i like to um hire local guides in in every country that we operate so i like to i'll i'll we never have a group of more than 12 people it just becomes unmanageable after that but I always have a Yellowwood guide who is, you know, professionally qualified, not necessarily British. We've got, you know, a Spanish guide who works with us. Uh, some of our guides are from France as well. Um, but always working alongside a local Ethiopian guide in Ethiopia or a Kyrgyz guide in Kyrgyzstan, an Iranian guide in Iran who knows the history. But then also when we're hiking in mountains, you know, they will have grown up in that region they know the mountains best and they know the people as well. You know, they'll say, oh, you know, don't trust that guy. He's a bad egg or, oh, let's go to this family. It's my uncle's house. We can go and have some in jail with them. So when you've got a group of 12 people, you always want more than one guide as well, just in case, you know, someone gets sick or the group gets split up because some people are slow walkers. You need more than one people, more than one person looking after them as well. So these tours are, it sounds like they're camping tours always, like people have their backpacks, you're sleeping out in the wilderness? Uh, and yeah, the, the company has sort of evolved naturally. I started just taking friends and family to Ethiopia 
and it evolves. Um, and now we're in six countries, as I said, we're, we're going to open in uh, Oman and the Southern Islands of Japan next year as well. So we'll grow to eight countries. But then within those countries, I, I'm noticing we're starting to have two quite distinct products. One and the, the one that's closest to my heart is the hiking and camping and horse riding and trekking and just really getting out into nature. But I'd also noticed that by just focusing on that, you know, you're you're making it inaccessible to a huge amount of people who maybe they can't actually walk for that long for whatever reason, or they just don't like it that much. So then I'm starting to make within each country, you know, an equal amount of hiking tours or horse riding tours and then cultural adventures as well. So, you know, you might go for a walk for an hour, but you're mainly there to see the history and, and just stay in hotels and just see the country without such an emphasis on, you know, the actual physical adventure travel. This is super cool. So, yeah, you were in the corporate world for a minute, and then it sounds like you made a decision pretty quick to quit and start a tour business, which is a whole different animal, especially when you're operating outside of your own country. I mean, it sounds like you've also grown really rapidly. Were you always this entrepreneurial? No. Um, it's interesting. So working, as I said before, I worked in big international corporate events. I, well, I trained as a journalist, and I was a journalist for a year. My degree is in English literature, which is why you know I love the literary side of, of travel and reading about it, and I write about it as well. Um, but then I did events for a long time, and then I moved into sales of events. So it did teach me a lot about international logistics, you know, how to sell. Um, but I'd never actually worked in the travel industry, and I'd never started my own company. So it was everything at once. And, you know, when I first started, I didn't actually know really how the travel industry worked, which is, you know, you will get uh, a company like Yellowwood, which is essentially, you know, marketing destinations. But what they would normally do would be to go to a local tour company or a DMC, they're called destination management companies, and buy a ready-made product. You know, we send our people around here, and then they sort of repackage that, put on a margin, and then sell it to the clients um, in their country or online or whatever. I didn't even know the basics that much. So when I went, I literally went myself, did the hikes myself and said, well, that mountain range was boring. I want to make this. Well, no one's going over there. Fine. I'll just buy my own tents and I'll make, I'll work with this guide and we'll do our own trip. So my ignorance actually really worked as a positive because I just started doing stuff that was completely new and completely different because I just didn't know better. And that's turned into a real advantage. And actually, that's what I sort of play on now, because Yellowwood, some of the trips we're doing, you know, where we go hiking in the Guaralta Mountains of Ethiopia, no other company is doing that. You can go and stay in an expensive lodge for 200 bucks a night, but no one's doing a through hike of the mountains, camping in the valleys. You know, I've had to buy 15 tents and ship them out there because there just weren't any tents there. Same thing in the route we do in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, same thing we're doing in the coffee country down in, in the southern uh, jungles of Ethiopia. No one's doing a coffee tour, even though that's where coffee originates from. So, um, yeah, my ignorance is sort of was, was, has turned into a positive because I just sort of followed what I like doing. And, you know, people seem to like that as well. No, it's super cool. And you, this has been going on for two and a half years, you said? Uh, over three now. So coming into about three and a half years and you just started this on your own? You don't have a business partner? I started it on my own, um, but I do. I've had two uh, silent business partners who I'd worked with um, 
in the corporate world before. They liked what I was doing and I've been freelancing. They'd, they'd already started up their own financial media company, so they're entrepreneurs as well. And they love travel, so Dom and Dan, they're called Dan, had actually lived in Ethiopia with his wife for six months uh, previously, and they travel all over the world as well and are really into hiking as well. So although they're sort of focused on their own businesses, they were able to invest in, in Yellowwood and give me a lot of strategy and guidance, but it means that I was able to put together a small team, which has meant we can grow quicker than if I was just a one-man band. Yeah, no, that's really cool. The um, one spot that is really interesting to me is Iran, especially as an American. Is that a place that like I could come join one of your tours, or is that hard for Americans to join? No, it's not at it's not at all. And and even at the moment, if you if you follow the news, there's a lot of political handbagging going on between the British and Iranian governments at, at the moment as well. But a lot of it is uh, smoke and mirrors. That fantastic new term, fake news, that we have in our lives. We work very closely with the UK uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the FCO. If they tell us, you know, and we're like literally in direct com com uh, communication with them, because if they tell us not to go somewhere, we don't go somewhere. We have a really good partner on the ground in Tehran, uh, a tour company that's been going for 12 years there, and they arrange all of our visas. If they, if they tell us not to go because, you know, it's, it's unsafe or, you know, politically it's a bit unsound, we won't go. Neither of those entities at the moment are telling us not to go. So we're going. We've got a trip going there with tourists in November. I led the last one we did there personally. I've been to Iran three times now. I led the last one we did there um, about this time last year. And we had Americans on that trip. And one guy actually was so touched with the hospitality of the Iranian people that he wrote a blog post on our website. Uh, he's a doctor for in uh, an A&E department in New York. A uh, chap called Nick, and he wrote, you know, the blog on our website saying, you know, don't listen to the media, go to Iran. This is how welcoming the people are firsthand. Like he just couldn't believe it because, unfortunately, the Iranian country um, has, you know, quite a, a hardline religious government, but that is not representative of of the everyday people who are extremely friendly and extremely welcoming and and just love having tourists there. Yeah, I've heard that about them. Um, met many people who had cycled through there on the way to um, India, for example, and they said that. And this was years ago, but they said like the credit cards and ATM cards wouldn't work. So the hospitality of the country the whole way through was just incredible. People taking them in, feeding them, letting them sleep, like because they literally couldn't get money or spend money there. Yeah, international banks don't work in Iran, which I the first time I went, I fell in that trap as well. So it's. One of my, I lived in Dubai for a couple of years, and one of my best friends there um, married an Iranian lady, and they had the best wedding. So it was a half British, half Iranian wedding in Dubai, and Iranians love to party. So you know, we were up all night, and I met the whole family, and they're like, oh, you know, they're 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 quite well to do. So they they've got houses in Tehran, but then they've got ski chalets up in the Alborz Mountains. And they were like, come to Iran, come skiing with us. And I'm the kind of guy, I'm like, you really don't have to ask me twice. I will come skiing with you. So we did. And the first time I went, um, I, I, I hadn't, you know, I, I consider myself, you know, this cool international traveler. And, you know, I've got lots of experiences from different countries, well prepared. And I'd forgotten about this. I don't think anyone had told me. Um, 
And I went there with five English pounds in my wallet and I couldn't even get a visa because when I got there to, to get a visa on arrival, it, the visa was like 60 euros and there were no ATMs even in the airport. So the Spanish guy had to lend me 60 euros to even get a visa to get in the country, which I, of course I paid him back. And then I just relied on my Iranian friends to, to pay for my ski holiday, but then of course paid them back later on afterwards. So yeah, that's one big thing. If you're going to Iran, take cash with you. So that was going to be my next question with the visa situation. So anybody can arrive in Iran and get a visa on arrival? No, no, absolutely not. Um, what I meant by visa on arrival was I'd already gotten through um, the admin. You have to get a visa approval number from the uh, Iranian government. So I'd gone through that approval process and only then could I get a visa on arrival. If you're American, you will need to um, go to the Pakistani embassy, I believe it is, because you don't have an Iranian embassy in the US. You need to get the uh, visa approved. The bit that takes a long time is getting uh, your application approved by the Iranian government. Once you have that number, only then do you put your passport into the embassy. And it's like you'll get it back in about 10 days with a visa. And then you're good to go. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, one question I had about the skiing there, what's that like? I mean, are the chalets like you have in Europe and America or what's the scene like? Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I snowboard. I'm not what I would consider, you know, particularly brilliant. I just enjoy it. Uh, for me, I just love being up in the mountains and that's just the, the cherry on the cake. If there's good snow powder and you can, you can snowboard down. Um, but it's one of skiing's hidden gems. So, the lifts go up to three and a half thousand meters, which is um, which parallels some of the highest uh, lifts in in the French Alps or in the Alps in Europe as a whole. It was the Shah, the last Shah, Ali Reza, who um, he was a bit of sort of an international playboy, and he was living at the height of the petrodollar boom in Iran, so he had money to burn. And he uh, used to go skiing in Switzerland all the time in the seventies. And it was him that imported over the Swiss um, ski equipment then. And that's that's the stuff that's still there. So actually, it was like top of the range ski lifts and chairs in the 70s, which means they're sort of OK now. But, yeah, the you, you've got red runs, black runs, blue runs. The, the most famous um, skiing resort is called Dizin, but there's one called Chemchak and there's a third one, which I've forgotten. And they've all got a view of Mount Damavan, which is the highest mountain in the Middle East. It's an uh, extinct volcano, but it's a perfect uh, um, triangular, conal shape covered in snow. It's absolutely beautiful. Wow, that's so cool, dude. Um, then, like, when you ski down, like, midday for lunch, can you get beers? I mean, do they... <laughs> No, absolutely not. Um, Iran's a dry country, so no apro ski, unfortunately. Alcohol is strictly illegal, um, but like most uh, dry countries, there is a black market. Alcohol can be found, but I do not wish to comment further on that subject. hundred <laughs> uh, percent. The other country that you go to, I'm really interested in, is Le uh, Lebanon. Yep, I'm. I just spent all of April. Uh, well, it was only a month. I can't say I was living there, but I spent the month of April this year there in uh, doing research in inverted commas. And we're doing our first trip uh, next month from the 2nd of November. I've got eight clients and we've got another trip running there, group trip in April next year. 
Lebanon's amazing. Lebanon is um, the, so I lived in the Middle East for a couple of years and growing up, we would go to family holidays. We weren't rich um, by any stretch of the imagination, but my, we could afford to go to Greece um, every year or every two years. So, you know, the, the Mediterranean for me and, and Greece especially has very strong, you know, happy memories of, of childhood and the, the Middle East is somewhere I love and continue to be passionate about. And Lebanon for me is just this perfect balance of the two worlds. I've never seen, you know, it's just, it's a mix of everything. Everyone speaks French, everyone speaks Arabic, everyone or most people speak English. You've got churches next to mosques. And um, there's just, you know, the sand of the Middle East is in the air, but then you go into bars and, you know, people are eating pizza or you go up to the Becker Valley and they've got vineyards and it looks like France. And then they've got these beautiful churches with and that the, the houses are made from huge blocks of stone with with terracotta tiles. And for ages, I couldn't clock what what it reminded me of. But it reminded me of Rome. Because it's, you know, the outside of Rome or Italy, sorry, about the, the Roman ruins of the temples at Baalbek are the most significant in the whole world. They've got these incredible uh, Roman ruins there. Of, of the, I think it's the Temple of Dionysus, if my, my memory serves. But the country is just this perfect mix of, of East meets West. And it's got culture and it's got raw energy. And of course, you know, it's rebuilt after smashing itself up for a horrendous civil war for 15 years and it, there's just so much going on there and of course the Lebanese love to party so the nightlife in Beirut is just off the, off the scale oh I want to go what's this tour going to be like I mean what can um, travelers expect for this Lebanese tour I I pitched this one so as I said before we normally do like focusing on hiking or we normally focus on culture I actually pitched this, the, the trip that I designed is, is middle of the road. It's a bit of both because there's something called the LMT, which is the Lebanon Mountain Trail. And it goes from the very north of the country down to the south. You could probably walk it in about three weeks because uh, there's a, a, a spine of mountains. And I did, I, I did about uh, four or five days walking along this Lebanon Mountain Trail. And it was absolutely amazing, don't get me wrong, but Lebanon's a small country and it's very highly populated. So every hour or something, you know, you'll come across a road or someone's house. And I'm used to walking in, you know, the Tian Shan Mountains of Kyrgyzstan by a glacier where, you know, we don't see other people for like four days. So hiking in Lebanon, it's absolutely beautiful. But, you know, you kept coming across towns and I felt a bit underwhelmed. So I was like, I don't really want to do this as a, a pure hiking trip because there's so much culture. There's the, the vineyards, there's the Roman ruins, there's the, the city of Bib, the port of Byblos on the coast, which is the oldest continuously inhabited village in the whole world. You've got the Jirtai uh, Grotto Caves, which is an underground uh, water system. There's so much culture and the hiking is really nice, but it kept getting broken up by just people living there. So it's a sort of half and half. We walk up uh, not more than like two hours a day and the rest of the time we'll go up into um the Jetta Valley and and see the monasteries there and where the Christians used to hide from um persecution and stuff like that so yeah it's a sort of this one's a, a, a half and half nice dude how how many languages are you speaking these days me I um I spoke I speak Spanish because I lived in 
Uh, I traveled in South America for six months and lived in Mexico for a year. My Japanese is good after about three beers because I lived in uh, Japan for a year in the Southern Islands, um, um, my second year of university, and I'm studying Arabic. And my Arabic, really, I haven't really got to grips with it yet. I can read and write it, but I've never... I'm actually learning Lebanese Arabic. Arabic's one of those languages where um, everywhere you go, it's different. So in, in Egypt, they, they would speak it like a Scottish person sounds to, to an English. It's re- got a really thick accent. In Morocco, it's mixed with French and Berber. In Saudi, they speak the really guttural fusha. It's called the pure uh, Arabic. Whereas in Lebanon, it's much more flouncy, mixed with a sort of French vibe. So it's an impossible task, but for some reason I continue to be interested in it. So still banging my head against that wall. I feel you, dude. Yeah, language is not my specialty, but I am fascinated by them and, and give it my give it my best shot. Um, how do you get your clients? Like, how are you finding all these people to come on these tours? It's a really good question, and I'm still not hundred percent sure. We're trying everything. Um, one of the once the snowball is rolling and being kicked down the hill there is a certain degree of momentum obviously the more people that come on tours the more word of mouth goes around they tell their friends we're doing the usual things like instagram um i used to spend a lot of money on facebook marketing and then stopped because although we were getting hits to the site they weren't really converting um i still take journalists on trips so we'll in January, for example, we took a, a, a journalist from The Telegraph, which is a big national newspaper in the UK, and a photographer from National Geographic. They came and we got an article published in the summer with amazing pictures. And she, her name's Sarah Marshall. She's a fantastic writer. She wrote, we got a great double page spread. And just, you know, people then, then, they, the, then the phone rings. People see that rather than seeing a Facebook ad, they'll pick up the phone they're interested, they'll, they'll book a holiday. But I'd say our, our biggest um, converter is just doing the trade shows. People buy from people, people like the story, people want to know and speak to someone who's been to those countries. So we do the adventure travel show in London in January, that's over two to three days at Olympia, I can't remember now. The destinations travel show, I drive up to the Lake District um, uh, in the, the UK to do the Keswick Mountain Festival. I just did the Country File Festival in New York. And we're looking further afield. We want to start branching out to Germany. And I definitely want to come over to do some, some trade shows in the US. Uh, there's a very um, popular company in, that, that does what we do in the UK called Wild Frontiers. They're a bit higher end, though. And, you know, they've got an office in the U.S. because they get so many clients. And we're op- we're having to open a dollar account now in our website because we're getting more and more American tourists. So I want to start coming over to see you guys. No, that's cool, dude. So when you say trade shows, you go, like, set up a booth with your logo on it and talk to people about these different adventures that you can take them on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, as I said, people people like to hear from people. People buy from people. So we'll sit there for a day. Our, our sort of hook is, so um, I mentioned that uh, coffee e- originates from Ethiopia. So I go and I brew up loads of Ethiopian coffee in the morning and set up a little table and they drink them out of these cute little coffee cups. And then I'll just say to people, hi, do you want to try some Ethiopian coffee? And who says no to free coffee? So they'll come and sit down, try some coffee, and then we'll just start talking about Ethiopia or whatever country it is that interests them and just take it from there. Do you make them drink three cups? Because isn't that tradition? You have to drink three cups every time you sit down. 
No, A had run out of coffee three times faster, and three, yeah, I could probably get sued for caffeine overdoses because it's really strong. I know. I, we have Little Ethiopia here in California, which I used to love to freak oh, out. Oh, yeah. nuts. And uh, got invited into just this antique shop and sat down with them and had three cups, and I was so spun and just caffeine high. It was I was uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it's really really strong stuff and they have it with loads and loads of sugar as well so but those little cups they'll fill about half full with sugar so i'll probably get soup giving everyone diabetes as well <laughs> yeah dude this is such a cool conversation i love your adventures because yeah you're taking people to places that i mean from an american standpoint like a lot of people are scared of just based on the name and the way the they're stigmatized within the media and that seems to be the places that you're drawn to and then showing the world that they're safe and cool and friendly people there like oman's coming on the radar soon right yeah absolutely and uh, oman i do know already i'm going there for a research trip after lebanon but when i lived in dubai that's where we used to go camping a lot um but yeah look i'm not some sort of saint i'm i'm going to these countries because i love going to them I, I genuinely love them and you know i'm being realistic i'm not going to take some clients to somewhere that's dangerous you know i really want to go to yemen at the moment because i mentioned previously you know i'm reading this book by freya stark winter in arabia about yemen but there's a civil war going on there at the moment like it is really dangerous i'm not going to take clients to to anywhere so you we have to pick the countries that like you said are, are maybe stigmatized or have a, a bad press in in the media but they have to be safe and yeah. those those are the places that I really like going to. And in fact, the whole name of Yellowwood Adventures uh, comes from that ethos. So Yellowwood comes from the poem by Robert Frost, The Road Not Travelled, which starts two roads diverged in a Yellowwood. And I took the one less travelled by and that made all the difference. And yeah, my English literature degree came in useful for something because everyone seems to know that poem. And then I go, that's where Yellowwood's from. And they go, oh, yeah, I get it. And actually, I couldn't believe no one else had thought of that. So I copyrighted it as soon as I could. <laughs> yeah, you just give me goosebumps, dude. What was um, life like for you growing up in the UK? I mean, it sounds like you traveled once or once a year, maybe every other year. And yeah, yeah what was, was childhood like? It was really, um, you know, I wish I, I had more, more interesting stories to tell you. It was very normal. Like, yeah, my uh, we lived in... Um, Kent, which is called the Garden of England. So, for all of you um, Lord of the Rings fans, imagine like the Shire. It's pretty much as close to that as, as you can get. You know, just fields, forests. I grew up on the very, and I grew up wild. My, I was born in London, but my dad and mum moved down here when I was two. And so I just grew up running around in the forest in bare feet, making bows and arrows like a little Indian kid. And, you know, traveled a little bit, like I said, to, to Greece. I think we went to America once when I was 16 because I had uh, cousins in Seattle. And that was pretty much it. And it was only when I got to 18 and I finished school and I saved up money that I was just like, hey, get me out of this town because I want to see the world. I'm an 18-year-old kid. Uh, but actually, it wasn't travel that, that, that got me out. So I was crazy about uh, martial arts and kung fu. I've been learning Shaolin Kung Fu for about two years from when I was 16. So when I was 18 and saved up some money, I was like, I'm going to go to China and learn Kung Fu in a Shaolin monastery. 
So, and that's what I did. So I went to China and got my head shaved and wore orange pajamas and got the shit kicked out of me. And only I was supposed to stay for a year and only end up staying three or four months because it was just hard, hard work. And a few other reasons, it wasn't exactly what, what I was hoping. But then I was out. And I, I'd been a nightmare to my parents growing up as a teenager. You know, every time they'd gone away, I'd have all like half the school round and we'd have parties in the house and stuff and in the garden and, and sleeping in tents. So I remember calling up my dad from China and saying after about four months, I was like, dad, oh, it's not really working out. I don't think I'm going to stay. And he was like, oh, sure, son. Yeah, I understand. That's fine. You're not coming home, are you? I was like, no, dad, don't worry. I've still got some money. It's fine. So then I started traveling and I hadn't really meant to, but I just did. So from China, I went down Southeast Asia, Laos, uh, Thailand, um, a few other places, Bangladesh randomly, and then finished up in the Himalayas for a month and went and did Everest Base Camp. I was 19 at the time before it was sort of unfortunately became the, you know, tourist landing strip that it is now. And, you know, I'd never seen mountains like that. To then, to have not, and my dad had taken me walking in the Lake District, but to go from that to then seeing Mount Everest at 19, I was hooked. Kung Fu went out the window. Everything was about travel from, from that moment on. Yeah, I had a similar experience. We took a, a car through the Himalayas from Lhasa to Kathmandu. And that was like being on the moon. I mean, I've never experienced any sort of landscape like that in my whole life. Like it was just so awe-inspiring and just like isolated. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the fact that people live out there and have lived out there is just incredible. Yeah, and to be so young and to not expecting it, you know, I I went. I actually, again, it was my from my dad. He, I had my birthday when I was in Thailand, and he'd sent a card, a card. Oh, happy nineteenth birthday! Remind Everest, which is obviously a joke, but it just like and I, I was just there, and I got this card. I was like, oh, man. Sounds cool. I'll go and see it. So everything was just done on a whim. And to such young, impressionable eyes, still it was one of the most, and I've been to a lot of places since, but I'm still chasing that dragon, you know, that that feeling of being in a landscape, being in a culture that you've never been in before. It's just such a thrill. You feel so alive. And, you know, I try and replicate that on the places that we go in in the country because when you do go to these new places and you do start to experience things that you had no idea even existed that's that's what travel's all about you know it's not going to Machu Picchu and being surrounded by 400 Australians that's not travel to me travel is being in something new that stretches you a bit when you are on the road is there a specific smell that makes you feel what you just described that freedom that excitement that joy of being on the road i have mine i just wonder what yours is yeah it's that's it's that ice icy in the in your nostrils from high mountains and and combined with a bit of wood smoke it's that ice and wood smoke smell where you're up high somewhere and people are burning uh you're above the tree line so it's not the smoke of trees but it's that they dry on walls and they do this all over the world so as soon as you get above the tree line in mountains so ice and the smell of uh, smoke from from those dung patties i'm like oh yeah i'm somewhere that comes back what's yours 
the smell of burning trash. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, I love it. Be in it. an interesting country. I love it. Or it's like trash. it's also leaves. It's just yeah, just like you described that smell of smoke because everyone's usually burning leaves, trash, um, whatever in in the area, and it just for me, it's the most beautiful smell in the world. It reminds you just of yeah, being on the road. Are you there? You're breaking up pretty bad. Hello? 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 Yeah, I can hear you fine. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, you're gone for a minute. Not a minute, like 15, 15 seconds or so. I'm, I'm getting a poor connection. It's maybe my end. I don't know. Uh, no, I'm getting a full connection on, on this side. It should be fine. Cool. Um, can you can you get out these, these like, if it, if it tailors off, can you edit that out? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, some of it I'll have to leave in just, just because it's uh you do get picked up halfway through and the listener can get the gist of it, but it's a super small portion of, and just started happening the last like five minutes. Okay. So I didn't notice it. It's fine for mind. Yeah. Yeah. You're, we're good. It's all good. Um, but as I going to ask next, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. Just let me think about this real quick. That's all right. Well, I was, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you, you've created this podcast where you're interested in, in travelers and, and entrepreneurs but what was your first – mine was going to Mount Everest and being like, oh, my God, what is this? And, you know, that – even if I didn't really realize it at the time, that put me on – that spun me on a different trajectory that meant everything I did since then has been related in some way, shape, or form to travel. What was yours? What was Because you're a surfer. You, you know, it sounds like you've been all over the place. But what was your one – if you could pinpoint it, what was your one thing? For me, the one thing was – going to Costa Rica when I was 18 to visit my friend who had moved there for a year and yeah. he was living in Puerto Viejo on the Caribbean side, which at the time was still like a pretty isolated little town, um, full of just adventure. And at that moment I knew this was going to be my lifestyle living in a third world country in a small village was everything I ever wanted out of life. Um, the travel aspect of things, my dad took me and my sister to Europe and I fell in love with Europe. And although I knew after going to Costa Rica that the third world was more where I was interested in exploring, I still enjoyed coming to Europe and, and just being in Germany or being in France, Italy, and, and moving around and seeing, learning new things. Well, you're allowed to like both. There's no, there's no one or the other. 100%. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so I lived in uh, – when I lived in Mexico, I was really into – I surfed all up the west coast, all of the west coast of Central America to Mexico, and I lived in Puerto Escondido for a year, right on Zicatella Beach, the Mexican pipeline. And for a, um, a British kid who only started surfing at 16, you, know, you have to learn pretty, pretty fast because pro surfers are breaking their backs on those waves. They are some strong, terrifying waves. So I had a house on that beach. Um, if it was too big, I mean, there was no way I was going out. I'd surf at La Punta or go up to Carrizalillo or, or some other beaches f- further down. Um, and that was, you know, after a year of surfing, I was actually pretty decent. But I've just, the mountains just kept calling me back. And so I've done a few surf trips since, since then, but nothing, nothing like that year of just going for a hell for leather in, in Puerto. Mm. Yeah, I've been to Puerto. I love that place. Big, scary wave for sure. Do you? Yes, ha- yeah do you have siblings do you yeah i've got one sister uh she lives in london we're actually chalk and cheese she's 
Um, she's definitely done a bit of traveling before, um, but she's she's much more of a, a home girl. She we've got a lot in common though in in other ways. We both studied English literature. She then did her masters in English literature. Um, so we we have other things. But she's tra- she's traveling a bit. I think she's going to Sri Lanka soon, and then down to see some relatives in Australia as well. So she gets around a bit as well, but not to the sort of countries I I like to go to. So has any of your relatives come on any of your tours yet? No, not yet, unfortunately. Oh, no, that's not true. I've got a cousin who came hiking with me uh, on one of our hikes in Kyrgyzstan in the Tian Shan Mountains. Um, my sister hasn't come, and my parents not yet either, but they're warming up to the idea of one of them. Probably will be one of the more cultural ones compared to the hiking ones, though. Mm. Cool. So you, d- you describe, you know, Yellowwood Adventures as having kind of two types of tours, one being the full-on camping hike, hike throughs, the other one being, you know, stay hotels, um, cultural experiences, a little bit of hiking adventures. For the audience to understand, like, what they're really going to get, like, when they land, is it, like, all-inclusive? Like, you pay one price and then you t- just take them by the hand and lead them the rest of the way? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I like to keep it simple. The only thing we don't include are um flights or price because people come in from all sorts of different places we include alcohol although we of course encourage you to buy it but then everything else is is included meals um everything and and for the hiking and horse riding trip nearly all of those are nine days so you only have to take five days off work if you include two weekends either side when I first started, I was doing two-week trips, and people are like, you know, bro, I can't take two weeks off work. That's, you know, that's most of my annual leave. So we cut it down to in nine days, you can still, you know, you can still see a hell of a lot of a country, especially in Ethiopia. We fly into Addis, and then we take a short uh, national flight, which costs like 50 bucks, but it means you don't have to drive for 13 hours, and then you're right in the mountains, and the next day you start hiking straight away. Whereas... Some of the the Lebanon tour, for which is a bit of both, that's nine days as well. But we're starting with some of the cultural tours. We're seeing a slightly older demographic are taking those people who are retired, for example, or if they own their own business. They actually, nine days is too short for them, so then they want to take two weeks. So we're doing a, a bit of, um, you know, still developing the, the products, but that's the, the basic shape that they take. But, yeah, we pick you up from the airport. We take you around everywhere. We drop you at the airport. So it's a fully included uh, package. That's cool, dude. And then this is, I mean, this is your full-time gig. This is how you make your living at this point in life, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it took me a while to, to work up to that. I've invested my life savings in this. I uh, started off still freelancing for the, the financial company, uh, financial media company that my two silent investors own and now invest in Yellowwood directly. But I was doing a bit of work for them uh, in the Middle East and Africa to just get some extra pennies to, to throw into the pot for, for Yellowwood. But now it's starting to stand on its own two feet. You know, we're growing, we're running more and more tours. And yeah, it's it's working. I mean, it takes a, a long time, you know, for, for entrepreneurs out there who are starting, you know, absolutely go for it, never give up, but just <laughs> allow things to be three times more expensive than you plan for them to be and take times as long because that is just the reality of starting a business you know you've got to have patience and this is the only thing i've ever really been patient with in my whole life just because i love it so much if you didn't if i didn't love it i'd have given up a long time ago 
Yeah, beautifully said. That's kind of what my final question would be, Sam. If you could speak to one audience member, you know, to encourage them to take that first step or encourage them to start that business, whatever it may be for them, what would you say to them? Yeah, just to reiterate the the fact that you got to love what you're doing. I I mentioned to you off air that you know I was really um, impressed with with what you're doing with your business of um, guiding people online to to improve their surfing and improve their pop up. But there's no way I could do that, you know, because I don't love it enough. Like I said, you know, I did surfing for about a year and a half and I got really into it. And then it tailed off because I went to the mountains because that's where my real passion is. You know, if you didn't love what you were doing, there's no way you could make a success of that business. And and the same with to 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 the same degree. So for anyone, if you're planning to do something, you know, follow the money, follow your, your I tried to chase the buck for a long time. And I would, by the time I got to where I quit my job. I was earning more money than I ever earned, but I was also the most miserable I'd ever been. So don't chase the dollar, chase what you love and the money will come afterwards. That's, that's the right way around. And it's also the better way around for your soul, for your happiness and just for your life. Cause when you then talk about your products or your company, you're honest and you're genuine and people can, can hear that, you know, they can buy a product from from any sleazy salesman, but if you actually love what you're doing, that will naturally radiate and people will pick up on that. Well said, Sam. Thank you so much. And audience, go check him out at Yellowwood Adventures and get on one of those tours. They sound amazing. Thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. Bye. Awesome, Sam. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story, sharing your knowledge of the Middle East and how you're presenting it to tourists and tourism in general. I think it's a great location of the world that really needs to get more exposure, show that it is safe, especially you know in America for those of us who are constantly bombarded by negative imagery of the Middle East and what's going on over there, even though – in a lot of these places, it's very isolated, small locations in which you know some of this upheaval occurs. It doesn't mean that the rest of the country is dangerous or that the whole country is out to get you. I just really love and appreciate what you're doing, so keep it up. And folks, if you are interested in these locations, I highly recommend checking them out. Yellowwood Adventures. Go to his website. Um, jump on one of his tours. I'm definitely considering it in the future as I work my way back east to Thailand at the end of the year. And would love to see you on one of these adventures. So thank you again for listening. Please hit that subscribe button if you're a first-time listener. And I think you all are so very, very beautiful. I appreciate the love and support. Thank you for joining me week in and week out. And I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that... I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new. To live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it, it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.